Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with BC's new condo rental rules. Is this backfiring on the government now? No more rental restrictions allowed. All condos available to rent out got Karen Kirkpatrick standing by to discuss. Have a listen to Premier David Eby here explaining why he did this. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. Okay, so what EB did here, this is now the law of the land in British Columbia, strata councils no longer allowed to put in rental restrictions. All condos available to rent out if the owner wants to rent them out. Is this backfiring now? Check this out. We've been talking about this on the show recently. Some strata corporations now saying, well, we don't like these rental rules. We are going to put age restrictions in our buildings instead. Go to 55 plus. Have a listen to Tony Giaventu, Condo Homeowners Association. We're well over 100 strata corporations, some of them quite large, several hundred units, who've already adopted um, within this six-week period. They've already had meetings and have already adopted 55 and over bylaws. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Liberal MLA Karen Kirkpatrick. She represents West Vancouver Capilano in the legislature. Very pleased to welcome Karen back. Karen, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, uh, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this? Uh, Well, I think it was uh, ill-thought-out policy, um, which I don't believe is going to actually result in what uh, government or Premier Eby says it's going to result in. Um, But the issue particularly with actually moving the existing stratas uh, and applying to become 55-plus buildings uh, is really problematic. It is, uh, I don't uh, don't envy stratas in going through and making this decision, uh, but it is now going to to limit both from a purchasing and renting perspective even more units for families and younger people to be able to have access to. Right, and as I understand it, I've talked to some Strata Council presidents who have said, look, the reason we are doing this is we liked the system the way it was. In some of these buildings, some especially some smaller buildings, we didn't want rentals. We wanted owner-occupied suites. We feel that the suites are better taken care of. People are more willing to get involved and volunteer on a strata council if they actually own the place. And so now they're being told you can't do that anymore. So they say, fine, we're going to bring in an age restriction now, 55 plus only. Now, have a listen to this here now. This is David Eby again asked about this, and he actually said this. he thinks this is actually a good thing. Listen to what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. It's a new program, and so we'll be monitoring this carefully. But it's important to note uh, that we have a lot of seniors that are looking for a place to rent, uh, and this may actually be helpful uh, to, uh, to ensure that seniors have uh, high-quality seniors' housing that's available for them to rent. Okay, that's an interesting kind of spin on it. He says this is actually a good thing, Karen. What do you think? 
Well, I think he was surprised and wasn't quite sure what to answer with that question. Uh, and he should speak to his own housing minister, uh, Minister Kalon, who has said it's a bad idea and is discouraging Stratus from going ahead to do this because it is going to reduce options for families and younger people. Uh, so I think there was a, a, a bit of panic behind the scenes when these, um, I won't call them, uh, you know, necessarily unintended consequences. We actually, my colleague Mike Bernier brought this up in the House with then uh, Housing Minister Murray Rankin, when he was introducing the bill, suggested that there might be a, kind of a run-on um, uh, Stratus applying for this 55-plus designation. And the minister at the time kind of scoffed at the suggestion and said it was unlikely that the removal of rental restriction would result in these applications. And now, as we just heard from Tony, there's, you know, over 100 and, and more coming along. So uh, yeah. I, I think that uh, Premier Eby was grasping at straw when he was trying to come up with a good reason for this. Do you think that, it, despite what the Premier says there, he thinks this is actually a good thing because it could, it could create more rental opportunities for seniors? I think, obviously, it creates fewer rental opportunities for people who are, who are not, for younger people. And David Eby himself had said one of his concerns was he wanted to create more rental opportunities for people who want to have kids. There's young families start want to have kids, don't want to have to move out of a condo. Uh, just because they're changing the rules. Have a listen to what he said here, his concerns about young families looking for rentals. Here's what he had to say, then I'll get your thoughts. I was contacted in my previous role as housing minister by a couple that uh, was pregnant. They were expecting a child, and they could not believe that the law in British Columbia would allow for them to be evicted from their home because they decided to start a family. Okay, well, I kind of understand that, how he wants to create more rentals for young families. But if you have more condos going to 55 plus, isn't that going in the wrong direction? Karen, your thoughts? Yeah, it's absolutely going in the wrong direction. Um, one of the things we did support with this uh, legislation coming through was the removal of the 19 plus requirement for, for some condos. And that addresses the issue of, of, of children. Um, but even in taking a look at the, the 55 plus and, and what he said previously about creating additional rental opportunities for seniors, even that is not going to happen because you're not going to have investors purchasing in the 55 plus buildings to rent them out because of that restriction. It limits their ability to uh, to attract renters. So uh, it, it's hmm. doing exactly the opposite of, uh, of what's intended and what he's saying it's doing. Okay, what do you think should be done here now? Do you think the government should back away from this these this rental restrictions reforms that they brought in, allow Stratus to bring in rental restrictions if they want? Well, before the genie gets too far out of the bottle, I think that there needs to be a lot more consultation. This was rushed through, as you know, the last week of uh, the legislature sitting. There wasn't an ability to ask questions. In my understanding, there was little, if, if any, uh, consultation with groups related to, to strata councils. So they've got to go back and they've got to have these conversations. There are better ways to do this. And if they are looking at, you know, there's one and a half million people in B.C. living in, in stratas, uh, their hope is to bring 3,000 units back into the market for rentals. And now we're seeing a lot of those are probably going to be at the 55 plus. 
they've got to go back and they've got to take a look at a better way of doing this. And they've got to speak to people about it. And perhaps a suggestion, uh, Mike, would also be uh, if the premier kept his commitment to add 11,000 affordable rental units every year, rather than the 11,000 in the last five years, which he's done, um, political stunts like this wouldn't be necessary because there would be more rental housing available. Okay, well, if you think that there should be more consultation, and I've talked to the Condo Owners Association who said, you know, they agree with you, they feel this was rushed through very quickly. Should should the legislation be withdrawn in the meantime while they do more consultation? Is that what you think should be done? I think that they should they should certainly pause the implementation of it. Is uh, mm. you know that came into to uh, it, it was enforced the day after the the house sat. Um, so there's a lot of people that still don't understand uh, the application to, to themselves. But yeah, they they should press pause. They should move that implementation date uh, into the future, and they should go back and do what they should have done in the first place. Um, and there may be other unintended consequences that they have not anticipated. We've got to figure out what those are going to be before we, we force this on people. Okay, we're following this one closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate the time. All right, let's talk about the chronically clogged and congested Massey Tunnel now for a long time. This has been one of the worst traffic bottlenecks in the lower mainland, and there have been long been calls to replace it. Now, remember what the previous Liberal government wanted to do. They wanted to replace the Massey Tunnel with a new bridge. This would have been the biggest bridge in B.C. The new government came in, the NDP, they scrapped that. They said, no, we're not going to do that now. We will build another tunnel instead. Let's go back in the Wayback Machine here. Here is Transportation Minister Rob Fleming making that announcement. Today I'm pleased on behalf of the province of British Columbia to announce that we will be building a new eight-lane immersed tube tunnel to replace the George Massey Tunnel on Highway 99. From the very beginning, our government's approach was to work with Metro Vancouver to make sure that we delivered the right project for the region. Okay, so a new tunnel to replace the old tunnel. But wait a minute. Wasn't there supposed to be another overpass here as part of the project? The city of Delta concerned about where this is going now. Let's check in with Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. Councillor, thanks for coming on today. Mike, good morning. Okay, tell me your concerns here. Uh, so we've been obviously working on this project for a very long time, dating back to 2013 when the previous government announced the bridge project. In that version of the project, it was more than just a crossing. It was also ensuring it was a Highway 99 corridor improvement project. We've had in our official community plan for Ladner for uh, many decades now uh, the need to ensure a second exit out of our community. Today, uh, during rush hour traffic, uh, the entire community funnels down to one collector road, Ladner Trunk Road, uh, which then goes onto Highway 17A, uh, which merges into Highway 99. Uh, We would like to reestablish the historical connection between River Road West and River Road East to ensure that our residents in West Ladner have a more efficient uh, route out of our community. This was a uh, critical piece that was included in the previous uh, bridge plan, And it was also included in early discussions on uh, the NDP uh, tunnel project. In fact, uh, I went back through records. We have 
uh, presentations that were provided to Delta Council by the Ministry of Transportation in 2019 uh, that included the concept of an immersed tube tunnel with an overpass over River Road. Unfortunately, in that announcement uh, from Minister Fleming that you just played in that clip there, uh, that version of the, of the project that went uh, public uh, omitted that crossing. Uh, so we're very concerned. We've expressed that. Mayor Harvey uh, has sent a letter to the Premier and to Minister Fleming uh, really requesting that when we build a $4 billion project, let's make sure that we do it right so that our residents and future residents have the infrastructure that they need. Okay, so this would be an overpass for River Road. Is that correct? That's correct. So this would go over the proposed uh, new tunnel and loop back around so that residents in that part of Ladner would have an opportunity to get onto the tunnel without doing the milk run, adding another 10 to 12 minutes onto their commute, uh, going uh-huh. all the way down to Highway 17A. So right. So as, as our community continues to grow, ensuring that we have the infrastructure that we need to meet uh, our, our growing community's needs. Okay. So, and this overpass you're saying was part of the original project. What happened to it? It just, what, dropped off the table, disappeared? What it happened to it? It was part of the concepts that were presented uh, to our council. I made comments at that time, and it's all on the the public record, and it's all in the recordings, and our council did, about how vital continuing that that, uh, second exit was with this new project, which was included in the previous bridge project. Ministry staff noted that, um, and unfortunately, when when it came back with the the actual uh, concept that uh, was approved uh, by the ministry, uh, that that, uh, crossing was omitted. So we'd like to see, you know, when we're talking about our our staff estimate, this is a $40 million at most uh, overpass on the scope of a $4 billion plus project. That's less than 1%. It's essentially a rounding error in this project. So we want to make sure rather than doing this 10, 15 years from now at double the cost, as has happened with other projects, let's get it right and have that economies of scale and get it done right off the bat. Okay, so they can fix this, you're saying, right? So let's say let's say the government plows ahead with this new tunnel. I mean, there's been a big fight over this too, whether it should be a new tunnel or, or a bridge. But let's say the NDP sticks to their plans here. They put a new tunnel in there. You're saying they could very simply amend the plan and, and put in this river road overpass at the same time. Is that right? And, and what... We'll leave the tunnel versus bridge debate to the provincial politicians. Our, our point here at the okay. City of Delta is, re- regardless of the, the, the method of crossing, uh, th- this is a critical component that we've been discussing for a decade with the ministry and has been in our area plan for Ladner since the 1990s. So this is not new information for us. Uh, we're still years away from shovels in the ground on this project. We have ample time to ensure that there's proper funding in place to get this right now rather than paying more in the future. Was Delta kind of blindsided on this, Ladner? Like, were they, did you guys know that they were get, they were dropping this overpass part of the project, or when did you when did you discover this? We were quite surprised. This was this this was uh, about a year ago when when this all came out. And again, we've been very consistent. Both the previous council uh, and the current council have passed unanimous motions in support of this second exit. And with the previous council, that's saying something because we didn't always have unanimous motions, but we were very clear on this and our residents have been very clear with us that this is something that they expect, that there's no point in building new infrastructure unless they're actually going to see improvements on their daily commutes. Okay, so you're speaking out about this now. Have you heard back from the province? What have they said about your concerns? 
So I also sit as vice chair of the Metro Vancouver uh, Task Force on the George Massey Tunnel Crossing, which is chaired by Mayor Brody from Richmond. Uh, So we're looking forward to future opportunities to meet uh, with the Minister of Transportation uh, and ministry staff to to continue this discussion. We also see regional benefits to getting this right the first time. Uh, But we know, you know, certainly the ministry is aware of our concerns and, and we're hopeful that through continued dialogue and perhaps, you know, at some education from, from, from our citizens, uh, we'll get to where we need to be with this crossing. Okay, but you, have you, you haven't really heard officially back from them yet? Uh, we, we, we have not heard uh, officially that they're looking at, at opening up the scope of work for the project. Uh, those uh. were the comments uh, that Minister Fleming made earlier this week. They're looking for additional funding from the federal government in order to make that happen. Uh, oh, but, no. Uh, so, don't tell uh, me don't tell me this is going to get into a fight with the feds now too. <laughs> so from our standpoint, I mean certainly we can have that conversation about funding, but again, let's make sure that the approved scope of work uh, covers the right project for our community uh, and for our region. Again, we're talking about less than 1% of the overall value of the project here. What would what would it mean for the people in your community if, if the government goes ahead with this project the way it is now and they don't build this this overpass that you want, like it would just, it would basically almost seems to eliminate the the benefits of a new tunnel. If you're, if you're going to lengthen your commute anyway, a a lot of the conversation around the Massey tunnel replacement has been rightly about congestion on highway 99, but there are spinoff congestion impacts within communities. If you go uh, down Lander trunk road at seven in the morning, uh, or five o'clock at night, you will see uh, the milk run forming uh, of backups of the entire community uh, funneling through one road to get in and out of, of Ladner. Uh, putting that second exit in, which is technically feasible, we have been told by ministry staff that it is technically feasible to do to include an overpass over the new tunnel looping in, uh, would, would eliminate that congestion and future-proof our community, also providing needed active transportation connections through biking and, and pedestrian access. You know, th- this is about creating a project, again, not just for our residents, but for the next 100 years of residents in our region. So we, we've got to get it right. Okay. Councillor, thank you for your time today on this. Thanks, Mike. Much appreciated. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about medical tourism now. As the Canadians who head out of the country for surgery when they are stuck on a waiting list here at home. Now, on yesterday's show, I spoke to Doug Andrew. He's the Kamloops senior stuck on a waiting list for knee replacement surgery. He said, to heck with this. I'm getting it done in Mexico. $10,000 U.S. Of course, that's what, over 13000 Canadian to get his knee replaced in a hospital in Mexico. He said, listen, to me, this was worth it. Instead of waiting, he was sick of waiting. I've got Dr. Brian Day standing by to talk about this. Have a listen to Doug Andrew here now on yesterday's show. 10000 U.S., that's a lot of money. But for you, you would say it's worth it rather than waiting two years. Two years, Mike. I've been waiting since 2016. Yeah, so you've been waiting years already, and now they told you to wait another two years. So you you figure, like, the heck with it. I'm getting it done. I'm paying for it. Yeah, I'm in my early 70s, Mike. Christ, I don't want to be in my 80s and still limping around. You know what I mean? Okay. 
He's in his early 70s. He said he's he's already in pain. It's impacting a quality of his retirement. Forget it. He's just going to pay the money. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Dr. Brian Day, founder of the Canby Surgery Center. Brian is an advocate for more choice in healthcare, including a private insurance option. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Dr. Day, thank you for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome, Mike. What do you think about this story? I'm sure this is a familiar one to you. People who say, look, I'm, I'm sick of waiting. I'm going out of the country to pay for my surgery. Well, it's, it's, it's unacceptable that we have uh, of universal health systems, the most expensive in the world, and yet we have the worst wait lists according to uh, data from the Canadian Institute for Health Information uh, and uh, Commonwealth Fund. Um, you know, the, the last survey that was done showed almost 220,000 Canadians were going um, just to the U.S. every year for for health care that they couldn't get access to in Canada. And I think it's it's um, a lack of accountability in our system. It's it's not working. It's inefficient. It's slow. It's um, and yet you know the paradox is that this kind of surgery. In, in the constitutional trial that we had, which was several years ago at the BC courts, the evidence was uh, from the government was that 41% were not being treated in the maximum safe time that they had designated was safe. That's 41%. And, and even that time is too long. So it, it's a disaster. But, you know, the other thing is just alluding to the, the phrase medical tourism, this is the number one growing industry, if you like, in the world. Um, right? He- expected to reach a trillion-dollar industry, and patients are going. Um, the biggest, the biggest um, group that, that head abroad are, are from are North Americans, uh, from the U.S. and Canada, and um, and Canadians um, in terms of percentage of population are, are the biggest users of medical tourism. Um, so it, it's it's wrong. They should be coming the other way. <laughs> you know, we we should be opening our hospitals instead of closing them at three o'clock in the afternoon and closing them on weekends. All of the other developed countries, like even the UK, they they the hospitals, the public hospitals, gain revenue from treating oh. non-residents and use that revenue to support and improve the public system. I wonder if you think it's kind of a risky thing to do to go outside of Canada to get medical treatment. That's one of the things that I asked Doug on the show yesterday, if he was worried at all about getting knee replacement surgery in Mexico. Let me play another clip here for you, Brian, get your thoughts. So this is Doug Andrew speaking to me on yesterday's show. He's spending 10,000 U.S. on knee replacement in Mexico. Here's what he had to say to me, and then I'll get your thoughts. Oh, you wouldn't believe the facilities, Mike. They're absolutely state-of-the-art, absolutely state-of-the-art. And I was so impressed with this, this orthopedic surgeon when I met him. Boy, I tell you, I was just, just blown away. Um, I'm not complaining with my Mex- or my Canadian surgeon either. He's really good, too. But, yeah. you know, another two years, I, I can hardly walk some days. Like, it's just ridiculous. Okay, so he said he's having trouble walking. He wasn't worried about the quality of care down there. I don't know. Do you think he should be? No, uh, actually, I've been a visiting professor at quite a few universities in Mexico, and um, you walk into some of the hospitals, it's like going into the Ritz-Carlton. They're unbelievably laid out, and, and of course, a lot of that is due to the fact that they have all of this revenue from this medical tourism, patients coming there for 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 um, 
treatment. And um, But Canadians shouldn't be having to go abroad for treatment. They should be able to access that treatment at home. And 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 you shouldn't have to pay $10,000. You know, private, um, when, when the BC Automobile Association uh, some years ago tried to um, o- offer private health insurance to its members, the fee projected was $75 a month. And, um, and in many cases, those fees will be paid by the employer, just like extended health is here. Uh, that should be an option that's free to Canadians. But Canada is the only country on the planet, literally on the planet, where it's unlawful to purchase private health insurance, even when the government is not providing that um, care to you in a safe time. I mean, it's not just joint replacements. People, um, you know, I had a, a call from someone just a few days ago that they've been diagnosed with a cancer and um, they're being told their treatment is scheduled for September. Um, that's unacceptable. And as you know, and as we all know, if uh, uh, someone in, in government, a political, politically important individual gets a cancer, they don't wait um, eight or nine months for the treatment. It's treated right away. So th- okay. there is, the, the, the system is in need of major reform. Okay, that's interesting to hear about your experience in Mexico because when when I was speaking to the guest yesterday, Doug Andrew, and he was describing the quality of the hospitals there in Mexico, that kind of surprised me a little bit because I guess there's a perception, like, you know, Mexico is not a rich country. It's a poor country, developing country. So they've got these great hospitals there. What about the average Mexican citizen? Are, are they able to go to these hospitals? Yeah, well, yes, they are, because they, ha- they are actually, and this happens even in Cuba. Like, you know, I'm an honorary member of the Cuban Orthopedic Association. Their downtown Havana hospital, orthopedic hospital, generates $20 million U.S. a year treating um, um, non-foreigners. Uh, and it's a public hospital, obviously, and they use that money to supplement the care of Cubans. So it just makes sense. And, you know, we, we Americans go abroad um, because down there many Americans have don't have, they don't have a universal system, and, and they should have, by the way. But, but they go abroad, and they spend, there are two million, over two million Americans go abroad every year for, for the same kind of thing. But they, um, they can't, we're their biggest trading partner, but none come to Canada. This could be, this could grow into Canada's biggest business for public hospitals. I'm not talking about the private sector, for public hospitals, and they can use the revenue to improve the public system in Canada, which is what other countries do. Okay, well, another thing that my guest yesterday told me, Brian, was that his own surgeon in Kamloops, who wanted to do the surgery on him, was complaining, he says he was complaining to him that he would love to do more surgeries, but he can't get the the operating room time in the hospital. Here's what he had to say to me yesterday, I'll get your thoughts. So this is Doug Andrew on yesterday's show. I talked to my orthopedic surgeon, and he tells me that he could probably do another at least three surgeries a week, maybe five surgeries a week, but he cannot get the hospital time. Is that is that another familiar story to you? Yes, it is. So Canada is the only country in the developed nations, the OECD of 28 or so countries. We're the only one that, that 
funds our public hospitals with an annual budget so that there's no incentive to treat patients. In fact, the incentive for a chief financial officer is to not treat patients because they use up your annual revenue. So in other developed countries, like you say in New Zealand or, or France, when a, when a public patient goes to a public hospital, the government provides revenue. So, so a hospital in, in Canada should be getting um, revenue. So that $10,000 would go to the hospital. And you can be sure in that case that the administrative structure of the hospitals would change so that can, that they wanted patients and would give, and that surgeons who right now are considered like their patients, cost items, would be offered more OR time. The, the, I mean, my OR time when I was at, um, working a lot in the public system was progressively cut over five, six years from 22 hours a week to five hours a week. And yet I had four, over 400, 400 patients waiting on my wait list. Wow. This, is the, this, is the, this is the rationing that is the principle on which our health system operates. All right, we've got a, an awesome final hour of the show for you today. Make sure you keep it locked here with me. Spend the next hour with me. Coming up later on, we'll talk about this incredible story out of the Netherlands, the search for Nazi gold. A 75-year-old treasure map emerges. Four boxes of treasure looted by retreating Nazi troops in the Second World War, buried around this small Dutch town. That's what it shows on this map. Now you got treasure hunters descending on this town, looking for all this looted treasure, gold, jewels, rubies, diamonds. I'll speak to a professional treasure hunter later this hour, Timothy Draper. That will be great. Do not miss that. So we have that coming up, but first... We start with tipping. Are we reaching the tipping point now on tipping? Lots more stores asking for tips at the checkout. Are you tipped out? Do you think this is going too far now? I had a guy tell me the other day he got asked for a tip after getting an oil change at a drive through garage. Really? I've got Mike Van Von Mosso standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this here now. This is part of a, a recent viral video about a customer at a fast food drive through got asked for a tip. Have a listen. I get up to the pay window, and she's like, how much do you want a tip? And I'm just like, what? And she's like, yeah, did you want to leave a tip? And she's like pointing to them. And I was like, oh, no, not today. And then I just felt really uncomfortable. But like, homegirl, what am I going to tip you for? I'm in the drive-thru oh my god okay being asked to tip through at the drive-thru there's lots more places where the tip option now shows up on your keypad as you pay let's discuss now with my guest mike von masso mike is a professor at the university of guelph and i'm very pleased to welcome him to the show mike thanks a lot for coming on today thanks for having me yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it. Are you seeing, are you hearing about more stores asking for tips or at least putting that tip option on the keypad while you're paying your bill? Yeah, this is exactly, we call this tip creep, where there are more places asking for tips, and they're also doing it more explicitly. I mean, if we think back pre-pandemic when we actually carried cash, 
often you'd see at the coffee shop a little bowl say tips welcome it was it, it wasn't in your face it wasn't pressure now because we all tap or whatever it's in your face you have to actually opt out of it and so <laughs> more places asking coffee shops i've heard uh, someone told me the other day where they get their winter tires put on ask for a tip we heard mechanics doing it. I, I joke sometimes if I give a particularly good lecture, I should put a tip jar at the front of the class <laughs> and see if I can get a little bit more. Uh, yeah, okay, I wonder what your students would think of that. Yeah, I'm sure it wouldn't go over well. Yeah, I don't think so. Okay, <laughs> not, not that you're not a great lecturer, I'm sure. But um, So, yeah, what kind of other stores or businesses do you find are asking for these tips? Like, I talked to a person who said, okay, I went to get a an oil change and I was asked for a tip. I brought my son a few weeks ago to get a pick up a sandwich at a Subway sandwich shop, like fast food place, and there's a tip option there. Like it's just becoming more and more common. Like what other type <coughs> of businesses seeing, have you heard? Go ahead. Well we're seeing more and more, as you say, you know, um uh I've heard massage therapists asking for tips, which I think is getting you know, that's supposed to be a therapeutic thing. But uh, like you said, subways, fast food places asking for tips, independent coffee shops, uh, automobile. I, I've heard tires, uh, mechanic, oil change. Uh, my wife tells me I'm supposed to be tipping the person who grooms our dog. Uh, I was at a bottle shop the other day picking up my favorite local beer. The person literally turned around grabbed a six pack out of the fridge, turned to me, put it on the counter, and then I was prompted for a tip. So we're seeing it more and more. And, it, and, and, and part of it is that it's just so easy for these companies to do. They just have to code it in on that machine and then it, it, it nudges you to, to give them a tip. Yeah. Do you also find that the amount of the suggested tip is also creeping upward? I mean, it used to be 15% was an acceptable tip. Now I think it's more standard is more 20%, let's say in a restaurant meal, but I've seen options for 25%, 28%, 30% tip. Is that going up too? Oh, without a doubt, uh, the the nudges are are working their way up. You know, you know pre pandemic, we'd see maybe 12, 15, 20. Sometimes in the larger urban centers, you'd see a little bit more. Uh, I've seen one the other day where the minimum suggested tip was 22 percent, 25 and 30. So so we're, we're seeing these suggestions go up. And I think, frankly, that this might start to backfire on restaurants. I think uh, we're, you know, uh, there, there's there, there's research that says that people who feel like they're being pushed or nudged in a direction that they're not happy going will actually reflexively go further in the other direction. So I think some of these places that are starting to ask for lots may see people react negatively and and actually lower their tip. I was in a yeah. restaurant the other day that actually didn't have a suggestion on it and I actually felt good about it. I tipped a bit more and I told the server, thank you for not pushing me to tip more and I actually tipped more. So I think we're going to start see people react to these higher and higher prompts. Yeah. Okay. This is a, a two-sided coin here. I can sort of see the other side of it too. I mean, we're living in a high inflation environment. It's a difficult economy. Oftentimes we're talking about minimum wage jobs here. And I can understand how someone working hard in a low paying job 
would would like to receive a tip. I, I understand that completely. But do you think that there's also kind of, um, like you mentioned, the potential for a backlash? Is there kind of like a, a guilt trip element to this? Like when you show someone that that keypad or an iPad and it says, here are your tip options, you almost feel like guilty if you decline to put the tip on. And we, we heard that in the in the clip we played of the woman going through the drive through saying she felt bad. Well, without a doubt, these nudges are designed to make us feel guilty. Without a doubt, that's what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to establish this Oh, everybody does it and everyone does this much. You should too. So, so they're, they're putting some psychological or emotional pressure on us. I think you're right though. I'm not begrudging servers, uh, servers adding value and I'm not begrudging them making a living wage. I'm just wondering if there's a better way for us to do this. I'm, I'm just wondering if sort of putting pressure on consumers, making them feel guilty is the, the way to make sure these people have a good income. The other, the other thing that, that is curious is which minimum wage uh, employees deserve tips and which don't, which is, you know, gets back to that tip creep discussion that we had at the beginning. Yeah. Because there are some places that don't ask for a tip, right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what would be a, a better way? Like you talked about, maybe there's a better way to do this and kind of guilt tripping people into a tip or putting these huge tip r- r- suggestions. Like, what is the option, though? Maybe the maybe their bosses, their employers, should pay them better. Well, and and so so if if I was the czar of paying for things, I would say let's let's force us to pay what this is actually worth, right? If these people, if 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 tips are the only way that these people will do these jobs, let's pay them actually what they're worth, and then uh, and then we'll have to pay more for eating out, which we're doing essentially anyway because we're adding tips on. So I think we could get a lot of the bias out of the system. We could get a lot of the discomfort out of the system. We could pay people fairly and just get rid of it. That's not going to be, that's not going to be easy in the short run. So I think in the short run, remember, this isn't a law. This isn't a rule. It is a social norm. They may be expressing an expectation on us about what we should do, but there's no rule that you have to follow here. So remember, you can decide what you want to tip you can, without guilt, opt out of the 22% and go to 15 or 18%. Remember, not only is the percentage going up, but the check is going up too because yeah. of food price inflation. So you're getting hit twice here. So you shouldn't feel guilty. You should remember this isn't a rule. This isn't a law. This isn't a, this isn't a requirement. Feel good, do what you want to do, and and don't feel the pressure. And I think that that can make many of us feel a lot better uh, about it in the short run. Okay, I think that's some good advice. Mike, it's been great to have you on today to get your thoughts on this. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, and look forward to chatting again. Okay, here we go now with this incredible story, the search for long-lost Nazi treasure, professional treasure hunter Timothy Draper standing by. First, though, have a listen to this report from CBS News. If X marks the spot, that sound means treasure hunter Jan Hinson could be getting closer. He says, I'm quite tickled. I've been searching this area for 30 years and have found some nice Roman objects, but I never knew Nazi treasure was buried here. 
The Dutch National Archive revealed the news, posting a treasure map online that was kept hidden for 75 years under the Official Secrets Act. This archives official says the red crosses show where four boxes of treasure are buried, millions of dollars worth of treasure. She says there are brooches, necklaces, silver and gold coins, rubies, diamonds, lots of valuables. Modern day explorers are descending on the Dutch town, which was on the front line in World War II, hoping to uncover the booty German soldiers looted after a bank explosion in 1944. The town's mayor says it's all pretty fascinating, but he's a bit afraid. I just don't want people to start digging haphazardly, he says, or it will get out of hand. Henzen is still on the hunt. He says, I think it's buried here, and I'm not the only one because I already see some big holes in the ground. More clues in a race for riches that may never be won. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Timothy Draper. Timothy is a real-life professional treasure hunter. The passion runs in his family. He's a third-generation treasure hunter. He's been searching for treasure for 25 years. His brand-new book on Amazon, Treasure of the Ancients, The Search for America's Lost Fortunes. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Timothy, thanks a lot for coming on today. Hey, Mike. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing great, and thank you. This is a really interesting job you have, and I love this story about the search for this Nazi treasure. I mean, this is like something out of an Indiana Jones movie here. This is this is wild. What do you think of this? I mean, this almost sounds almost too good to be true. Do you think this treasure is real? You know, Mike, I've been uh, looking into, you know, uh, Hitler's, ambition i guess you can say for several years now and i can say there's definitely a lot of evidence that points to a lot of treasures a lot of gold a lot of things that he had his hands into and i think he did it for many different reasons as well yeah well you know there could be something to this i mean i think it's been documented that there was this bank explosion in 1944 this little dutch town was on the front lines of the war the, the nazis were definitely there there's this treasure map that's been released now after 75 years i don't know like i re speaking of indiana jones i remember that line in the movie where he said x never marks the spot so i'm wondering do you as a treasure hunter yourself when you've got a map you've got an actual treasure map in your experience is that are, are those typically legit, or is it a clue, or do they ever work out? Uh, you know, that's funny, because I, I do remember that statement he made, and it's interesting. I, ha I have a map on my wall right now, old Spanish map, and what's interesting is every cache site, every mine that's marked on this map has an X, or <laughs> it has a different icon that says this is where it's at. So <laughs> it's interesting Yes, I would say if you know how to read the maps, there is an X on the map. You just have to find out where that X is. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Like you mentioned that you've sort of done some research on the on the his on the history side of this stuff. Did like retreating Nazi troops? They obviously looted a lot of treasure. They looted a lot of wealth. Have have there been sort of Nazi treasures discovered over the years? There has. And in fact, I've been following on that in the last few years. Um, 
you know, there's there's been news articles that have uh, came up from the ground about, you know, Nazi gold being found around the world. I can tell you here in the United States, I've been working on a, another Nazi gold treasure that's around the Four Corners area, you know, a very popular area that people know and, and go and see. So these Nazi treasures and gold caches, they are circling and they have been for a, at least a couple generations now. Okay, Four Corners, uh, that's around, is that in Colorado? Yeah, so you got Utah, you know, that's where the four states right in that area end yeah. up connecting. Yep. Right. Okay. Let me ask you this, Timothy, about your job as a, a professional treasure hunter. This is this is super cool. So this is runs in your family, right? Like you're a third generation. How did your family get into this? You know, my dad, um, he ended up always liking archaeology. I remember growing up hearing from my dad all these different stories and how he wanted to go be an archaeologist. And, you know, at the time, the Indiana Jones were very popular, you know, back in the early 70s and when I was growing up. So uh, that just kind of motivated everyone. You know, when you talk about the third generation, um, it's just been passed down to me. Um, and I've been able to take this knowledge that other members of the family have been able to do and research and move on. So um, it, it, it runs even deeper than that. You know, my family bloodline goes all the way to uh, the UK area with names like the Sinclairs and things like that. So I don't think I can help it. It's in my blood. This is, this <laughs> is I was born to do this and this is what I do. What kind of stuff have you found over the years? You've been at this for a long time. What are some of your greatest finds? You know, when you, a lot of people, when they ask about that, they think either gold or artifacts. I have had many artifacts in my hands. Some of them have been found here in, the, in North America, but they came from cultures from Central and South America. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I've held... I've, I, I've ended up finding Spanish sword here in North America. Um, but I got to say, what, when we talk about treasures, a professional treasure hunter is not quite the same where, you know, I'm looking for this big treasure. I'm out there in the middle of the night and I'm digging. I'm going to find this treasure chest. The treasure can be many different things. Lots of times I'm finding um, structures and evidence of cultures that, aren't even in the history books. So, yeah, I guess it kind of depends on what you think is treasure. Is it a big hoard of gold, or is it finding a lost city that no one knew about, you know? So there's a lot of different treasures that I have found. Timothy Draper is my guest. He's a real-life treasure hunter. UnchartedExpedition.com is his website, talking about the search for this Nazi treasure in this small Dutch town. The Dutch archives there releasing a 75-year-old treasure map. You know, when you take a look at this story, I love this story, Timothy, and it says that the, these records suggest there are four boxes of treasure, rubies, diamonds, gold, necklace, brooches. I mean, it almost sounds too good to be true. When this kind of a story breaks, do you typically find that a lot of these a lot of treasure hunters will just dis- possibly descend on this little town looking for this 
Oh, yeah. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. There's already, it doesn't matter if they're amateurs or professionals, it's going to cause a lot of attention. I've always said that. Look at our ancestors. Look back in the 1800s when gold was struck. Uh, everybody fled their homes. Everybody went out to try to that chance of striking it rich. So whenever there's a map or something pointing the general public to an area, that becomes a hot spot, and I can guarantee that. Okay. When people come to you and they say, look, I want to get into this. This sounds like it's an exciting thing. I'd like to try and go out and, and find some treasure myself. What do you advise them? Like, How do people get into this life? The one thing I, I, you know, when people, it, it, that, that's, that's a good question. Treasure hunting is pretty tough. You have to be very motivated. You have to be very dedicated. Um, I've worked with a lot of colleagues in the past where, you know, they came to me, they were excited about it. You could see everybody loves, you know, you mentioned treasure and people's eyes just light up. Yeah. Some people don't have it in them to stay in it in the long haul to actually make something of it, if that makes sense. So what I try to tell people is, and that's why I created my web websites. If you go to my websites, there's a lot of blogs, there's a lot of tools there to educate you on this kind of stuff. But um, I always tell everybody, if you really want to do this, be prepared to spend 90% of your time, not in the field looking for the treasure, but researching for that treasure. Mm. How about... You have to spend a lot of money to do this. Like speaking of the gold rush days, I know a little history on that. I know a lot of guys who were had gold fever ended up spending all the money they had trying to find gold and they never found anything. Like can you can you spend a treasure yourself trying to find a treasure? <laughs> yes. Yeah, nothing nothing that I have done in the last couple of decades has been cheap. And it seems like it just becomes more and more expensive the longer you get into it. Okay, that's, well, Timothy, risk. Yeah, there's risk and reward, I guess. Do you think? Do you think anyone will yeah. find this this Nazi treasure? That's a good question. Um, unfortunately, in my experience, if it does get found, the public might not know about it. Um, there are a lot of things that are not talked about. Um, sometimes it depends on if it's a professional treasure hunter that brings. Um, his discoveries to the public or if it's going to be a silent treasure hunter. Um, so that's kind of hard to say, but I think there's always a chance of it being found. It just depends on if the public hears about it or not. Timothy, it's great to have you on today. Thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.